Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. Well, welcome. Today, my guest is David Williams. David is the executive director of the Hydroplane and Raceboat Museum. Welcome to the episode. Well, it's good to be here, Scott. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, we've. Uh, this is going to be exciting for me because I, as, as a kid, uh, hydroplanes on Lake Washington, and then, as I'm sure you've heard hundreds of times, you know, we built them out of wood and towed them around behind our bikes. That's and, that's uh, a way you can tell how long someone has lived in Seattle. It's one of those uh, childhood identifiers. You can say, "Hey, do you know who J.P. Patches is?" And if people yeah. say yes, you know they've been here. Uh, then you go, "Hey, did you?" You ever tow a hydro behind your bike? And if you get that glassy-eyed stare, like, oh, what, what? Right. <laughs> you know, it's a transplant. But if they go, oh, yeah, my favorite boat was Pay and Pack, and I used to paint it with crayons, and then then you know that's a longtime native. Yeah. We'd tap nails in the back so that they'd spark behind, you know. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard all the stories <laughs> about, you know, how creative. So, so David, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about the, about the museum and, and how long it's been in existence and what the What, the what we do. Yeah, well, what the, do you do? The mission of the museum is to honor, celebrate, and preserve the legacy of hydroplane racing. Um, it was actually founded in uh, 1984, but we really sort of struggled along and didn't have an edifice, didn't have a building where we could display our collection until the early 2000s. Um, and we have at any given time, uh, we have about 24 boats in the collection. But the boats are pretty darn big, so we only have room to display maybe a dozen to 15 of them at any one time. So if, if when this pandemic is over and you come visit the museum, you won't see the same you know, dozen boats there all the time. We will rotate displays. Uh, one of the things that we learned really, really early is that it was much easier to take the boats to people than bring people to the boats. So all of our boats have been restored to running condition. Um, and in a normal year, we'll run them three or four times, typically around the, the Washington state area. We'll run in Seattle. We'll run in uh, eastern Washington, um, the Columbia River and Tri-Cities. We'll run uh, often twice on the Columbia River and then once up on Lake Chelan. But we've traveled quite a bit farther than that. We've been as far east as Buffalo, New York. Uh, we've been as far south as Gunnersville, Alabama, and as far west as Honolulu, Hawaii. Um, and we've run just about everywhere in between. Uh, so that is a good way for us to, to bring the boats to people and let them see what a 1950s uh, aircraft, you know, Rolls-Royce Merlin-powered unlimited hydroplane looks like and sounds like. Yeah, like I was saying before the episode when we were at Lake Chelan, the, being that close when they were running is... Well, you feel it. It's, it's fabulous. It's, it really is. It's amazing. But you mentioned, okay, so you've taken them as far as Buffalo and in Hawaii. Uh -huh. These are, these are not something you just put behind a pickup truck and, and tow across the country <laughs> or how, how do you get them to Hawaii? You're not, well, you Hawaii, we, we ship them on a steamship line. Um, and, uh, you're right. It's sort of a chore to tour the, tow these things cause they're 30 feet long. They're 12 to 14 feet wide, and they weigh three tons. Um, we have really unique custom trailers that will tilt the boat at about a 60-degree angle because you can't tow down – you can't tow something 14 feet wide down the highway. You'd be knocking over signs uh, and getting pulled over at each state line. So we tilt them at an angle to make them only eight feet wide, and then they're legal to, to tow on the road. And they always get a ton of eyeballs when you're going down the road. I've seen them, you know, in passing through the years and you're always like, you're, it, <laughs> what, what is that? You know, it, it, it's a, a funny thing. You have to, it's, I, I often tell people, I am more nervous about driving the boat to the race course than I am about driving the boat at the race course. Because when you're towing one of these down the road, people like to look at the boat. They like to get up right next to you and you know, pull out their phones and take pictures. And they don't pay any attention to whether or not your turn signal is on, whether or not you're trying to merge into another lane to, you know, to take I-90 South. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's much more difficult driving the boats in traffic uh, when they're on trailers than it is actually driving them in traffic on a race course. So the race courses, let's, let me ask you this. So these are just, these sure. are all my questions. I've always wanted to know what does it take size wise for, I, I grew up. So I grew up thinking that unlimited hydroplanes were on Lake Washington 
the Columbia down at Tri-Cities, and in Detroit. I know that they've raced elsewhere, but those are the three places that uh-huh. I heard. Where, so how big of an area do you have to have? What, what's the con, what conditions need to be present for a, an unlimited hydroplane race? Well, first you need water. Um, the, okay. <laughs> the race courses that we run on now with the vintage boats um, have to be um, at least a mile and a half long. Um, and no more than three miles long. We don't, um, we found that for the vintage exhibitions that we do, if we deliberately shorten the courses a little bit, the boats don't run quite so fast, which may not be as much fun for the spectator, but it makes sure that the boats, uh, stay at a safe speed. Um, so the race courses, uh, we typically run on our, you know, our favorite race course, our best race course would be a two and a half mile oval. So, um, but then we have to have uh, specific sizes of the lanes. The lane uh, itself is about, it's the width of the boat plus 10 feet. So that would be uh, a, a 24, 25 foot lane. And we need lanes for six boats. And then out from the outer course, we have to have 600 feet of clearance to the nearest shore or nearest obstacle so that we're not, you know, those are insurance safety regulations. So we are, we're usually looking for a, a, a spot of water that's about a, a half mile wide at least, and two miles to three miles long. Um, we do run on lots of rivers, but our preference is to run on a lake. Um, you don't notice it if you're sitting at the lake or sitting at the river, but lakes are flat and rivers are not. A river, oh. you know, flowing water is going to follow the contour of the bottom of the, the river. That's real obvious when you see water flowing over, you know, flowing fast over rocks. Um, and, and then you see rapids. Well, that same phenomena happens even when the water is going relatively slow over an uneven but grassy bottom. So when we race at some place like the Columbia River, you don't see any you know, ripples or any change in the surface, but that's fairly rough water. Um, and we're still going 160 miles an hour and we're going over lumps and bumps that may be a foot and a half, two feet deep. Uh, so imagine an Indy car going 160 miles an hour and, and, you know, jumping off a two foot tall hill. And, um, so yeah, our, our preference would be lakes rivers are fine, but that takes a different type of, of driving and a little bit different setup on the boats too. So how deep of, or how shallow of water can you run in? What's- um, we can run in fairly shallow water. The boats don't draw a lot. Um, we, uh, the, we never would want to run in anything more shallow than three or four feet. Um, wow, that's, that's, shallow. that's possible, but, um, we, we would like to avoid that and run in, you know, 20, 30 foot deep or, you know, um, or, or deeper. Some of the places we've run in the past, Lake Tahoe, Lake Coeur d'Alene, Lake Chelan have some really deep sections that are over, um, you know, over a thousand feet deep. Yeah, that's. I wouldn't have thought you could even run in three or four feet. That seems incredibly shallow to me. That's that's fascinating. So, as hydroplane racing pertains to Washington State, you've you've written a couple of books. You've written one on hydroplane racing in Seattle, one on racing in the Tri Cities. I've read the one in Seattle. I haven't read the Tri Cities one. And one of the things that fascinated me about the book, and I'm a sports guy, or at least I say I'm a sports guy, is you can make the case that the hydros were really the first pro sport to hit Seattle. Well, you, you can. Um, and, and there's a real, when history is a, a link, you know, is, is a chain made of, of links or a, a string of dominoes. And when you, you start to go back, I can't say that hydroplane racing was the only big time sport in Seattle because here you know, we had um, the, you know, the Seattle Metropolitans hockey team back in the, you know, the, 1918 and we had the seattle rainiers uh, minor league baseball team playing at six stadium for all those years but as far as a continuous major league sport that caught the nation's attention um, it was hydroplane racing and and it starts uh, people don't realize that organized powerboat racing is is quite literally the oldest form of motorsports we had our first races um, on an international scale in 1903 and the first races in the U.S. in 1904. Um, and that was long before Indy 500 or, or 
of course, airplane racing. Um, none of that happened um, before boat racing. So the original powerboat rules were very similar to um, sailboat racing rules. Uh, in fact, they were basically just sailboat racing rules rewritten to uh, allow you to run in a circle instead of a triangle, because sailboat races are generally a triangle. Um, one of the unique things about sailboat racing is that if you won the race, you got the right to defend your race on your home water. That still holds true with the America's Cup. Uh, whoever wins it gets to host it. Same thing was true with powerboat racing. The idea there being if you if you won the race, you should get a little bit of reward. You get an advantage. So you can defend it on your home water where you know what currents and winds and, and things are like. So in powerboat racing, if you won the Gold Cup, which was our premier race, you got to defend that at your hometown. Um, in 1950, a fellow from Seattle named Stan Sayers won the Gold Cup in Detroit um, and brought the Gold Cup to Seattle in 1951. Coincidentally, um, in 1950, a, a new festival was formed called Seafair. Um, and Seafair's intent was to kind of showcase all that Seattle had to offer. Uh, the decision was made to, to combine this new Gold Cup that had been won that had to be held in Seattle with the Seafair Festival. Um, that race, uh, the Gold Cup, was run in Seattle in 51 uh, through 1955, and it was put on by the Seattle Yacht Club because Yacht Club knew how to conduct races. Um, in 1956, the Gold Cup went back to Detroit for one year, but uh, the Yacht Club decided they'd pulled a festival called uh, the Seafair Race. So we've had a, a continuous race. The, the interesting thing is, um, you may not know this. Yacht clubs have money. That's, that's a surprise, I'm sure. Um, and, and guys that have money have, have power and ambition. Um, again, facts you probably hadn't considered. Um, so at any rate, uh, you have these rich guys at the yacht club that are, are putting on this festival uh, and they get real successful at it. And, and for a number of years, um, 500, 600,000 people come to the festival and um, sitting around the yacht club talking to themselves, the, the, this, the kind of the power brokers, the movers and shakers that put on the race thought, let's try something different. This is, you know, we're getting pretty good at this. What else could we do? Well, instead of putting on a sea fair, the guys decided they would bid on a world's fair and they won the bid. Um, and, and it's not the exact same boat racers, but the same, uh, the, the, the guys at the yacht club that had the money, that had the power, that had the ambition bid on and won the rights to hold the 1962 World's Fair. Um, and through the World's Fair, we got you know, the Space Needle, the monorail, key arena, and a heck of a lot of public attention. As this, the, the 62 World's Fair was closing, the, the mayor of Seattle, a fellow named George Clinton, challenged the promoters of the World's Fair to bring professional sports to town. Um, to bring stick and ball, to bring baseball. Um, and they did. They were successful. And within uh, six years of the end of the World's Fair, we got a Major League Baseball team, um, a very short-lived team. Uh, called one, the season. Seattle, one season <laughs> called the Seattle Pilots, and then they got stolen by Milwaukee and now are the Milwaukee Brewers. But that was okay. They continued to work, and we got uh, basketball which lasted more than one season, but eventually got stolen too. But we do have uh, three really good professional teams that have come out of that, that string of professional teams. You know, we ended up with the, the Seahawks, the Mariners and the Sounders. Um, and when they, they needed a place to play first, you know, when we had just basketball, they played a key arena there, which came from the world's fair, but eventually uh, the, the other teams, the Mariners and the, the Seahawks had to build the Kingdome and then the stadiums we have now. Um, and I'm not saying that none of that would have happened without powerboat racing, but powerboat racing was the first domino that tipped over. You can take powerboat racing that led to the civic pride and the, the, the group of guys getting together. And then they brought in the world's fair. And then that led to the, um, to professional sports. And that led to, you know, uh, the clink and uh, you know, the, the stadiums we have now. So it is a continuous line. And that line started with powerboat racing. 
Well, in the early sixties, I'm, I'm too young to really know that, but it, in the, in the late sixties, Seattle was a sleepy little town and we weren't, a, we, I don't think we were considered a big league town. And I think that without this link, without those gentlemen having the resources, the connections, the drive, the ego to, and the audacity to ask for a world's fair and pull it off and then bring us major league baseball and then go get us major league baseball again in basketball and football. Um, Seattle is, you know, a big league city now and we'll have hockey here next year and have all the big sports. Um, you, so boat racing as a kid, these boats were decked out with names of, of iconic companies that were local to us in, in Thriftway was not in Detroit. Um, and Budweiser became, I, I just seem to remember Budweiser as being like the Oakland Raiders of, of hydroplane <laughs> racing. You know, you, you either love them or hate them. Yeah. And, and they seem to have unlimited money and, you know, they could do whatever they wanted. And so you would always root. I mean, at least I always rooted for somebody local. What, what was, what was the impetus that brought advertising onto these boats though? Sure. I mean, well, to, to step back a little bit further and, and, and to look into the, the 50s when powerboat racing first came to Seattle, um, the boats did not have commercial sponsors, but they had um, really owners that, that you're going to recognize. Um, Horace Dodge, Dodge Motor Car, he owned hydroplanes. Edgar Kaiser, Kaiser Steel, Kaiser Aluminum, Kaiser Jeep, he owned hydroplanes. Um, Sam DuPont, um, DuPont Chemical owned a hydroplane and and here from Seattle a guy named Bill Boeing owned a hydroplane so you had uh, a, a group of incredibly wealthy well-connected powerful men who were all involved in hydroplane racing um, at that same time uh, well with that type of wealth you needed um, you were able to to run an expensive sport like boat racing. But there were guys that didn't have that type of money but wanted to be involved in the sport as well. So they began looking for commercial sponsors. Um, the, the first thing that happened um, is that people uh, tried to run the sport um, and tried to claim the uh, expenses as a business expense and take that off their taxes as a business expense. Um, the first guy that tried that was Stan Sayers, who ran a boat called the Slow Motion, um, and he claimed it was a business expense. And in 1956, um, he got uh, audited by the IRS, and the IRS said, no, not a business expense. That's that's your hobby. Um, Sayers was a savvy business guy, and and he sued. He sued the IRS. And that turned out exactly like you would think a lawsuit against the IRS is going to turn out. He lost. Um, and not only did he owe back taxes, but he owed penalties. And the, the, the entire, his entire debt to the IRS was about $260,000. Um, well, a short while later, in 1958, um, there was a guy named Ole Bardal who lived in Ballard. And he ran a company called Bardal Oil. And he ran a hydroplane called the Miss Bardal. At the same time, there was a fella in Detroit named George Simon who had a company called uh, U.S. Equipment and Tool, and he ran a hydroplane called the Miss U.S. Um, these two guys were a little bit smarter, uh, more savvy businessmen than, uh, than Sayers had been. They both ran businesses, and they both named the boat after their business, um, and they took their business, their, their boat racing expenses off their taxes as if that was a business expense. And again, the IRS audited and the IRS said, no, this is a hobby. You have to pay taxes. Well, Simon and Bardall joined together in a lawsuit against the IRS. Um, and they had done their homework. Um, and they had kept track of the impact the sport had on their business. Bardall sold an oil and Bardall was able to show that in Buffalo, New York, in April and May of 1958, they sold you know 10 cases of oil. And then they raced with the Miss Bardall hydroplane, and they won the race. 
in, and in June, July, and August, they sold a thousand cases of oil. So they could show an impact and they were able to do that all across the country. Simon, on the other hand, used the races as, um, as a way to entertain clients and could show that he brought, uh, he, he sold tools to the automotive industry and he could show that he brought execs from Ford to a race and he wined them and dined them at the race. And at that race, he signed a contract for a million dollars worth of tools. Um, and they both won the lawsuit against the IRS. And in 1963, the IRS determined that powerboat, well, not powerboat, that motorsports, based on the powerboat lawsuit, that motorsports was, in fact, a legitimate form of marketing and motorsports expenses from then on could be treated as business expenses. Well, that led to everything that you see today that led to you know to winston getting into stock car racing that led to your gm and chevrolet getting this nascar racing all of the contemporary sports marketing including probably um beer sponsorships and truck sponsorships of, of big football games all of that takes its you know started with the lawsuit between Ole bardall george simon and the irs um, that's a long way to sort of answer your question, but that sets up the ability of large corporations to funnel money into motorsports, which if, if you're going to be successful in motorsports, it takes a lot of money. And if you're not a Bill Boeing or a Sam DuPont, you're going to need a commercial sponsor to keep your business, to keep your, your race team going. Because uh, so in the late seventies, you know, when I was paying attention, like, I'm thinking like Thriftway. Squire shop. Um, there was some plumbing boat. I can't remember. Pan pack. Well, the pan pack, but there, I also want to think it was like just a plumber. Well, there was, company. there was a beacon plumbing race. That's it. Um, but that's not contemporary. Um, yeah. Well, but, there, there was a, a, a boat called B and L plumbing, which was sort of a back marker also ran, um, that didn't, there've been a couple plumbing sponsored boats over the, the decade did these i seem to remember that these the boats would some of them the 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 second tier boats if you will not not the budweiser corporate really big corporate sponsors but would they be carrying one brand into in seattle and a different brand in detroit that that became uh sort of par for the course in in the in the the late 80s, early 90s, there were a couple of dominant sponsors, Budweiser um, and R.J. Reynolds Tobacco with the Winston Eagle or the Smoke and Joe Camel. Both those operations were willing to put in over a million dollars, um, which was money that was probably well spent for them. But um, with that money, they capitalized on the media exposure that the sport had and, and kind of... Um, overshadowed some of the smaller teams. So the smaller teams were not able to get enough money through a single sponsor. So they went race by race. And, and you're right during the the nineties and and quite a bit during the, you know, two thousands teams would get a $5,000 or 10,000 or a, a minor sponsor in Detroit. And then another minor sponsor in San Diego and, and just sort of piecemeal together. Um, instead of trying to come up with a large sponsor for the entire year, they just get individual smaller sponsors. Which is interesting. Cause I, I also remember like KISW had a boat mm-hmm. and I think it was, a, I think it was successful if it didn't catch on fire. Um, <laughs> it was, well, it was KISW's made a, a return to the sport. It's sort of a nostalgic, but they are, they continue to run a boat. Um, okay. And they, they understood um, that, it was marketing and you didn't have to win to get people to identify with your boat. And, and they sort of played off the fact that they were a back marker. Um, and, and to a certain extent in, in the seventies and eighties, Alberto did something similar um, where they created a more or less a personality for the team. Carrie SW certainly created a personality for their team and people identified with that personality um, and wanted to root for the underdog. And um, so, yeah, they, 
So, so how do I want to ask this question? So er, earlier we were doing a little research here. I, I stumbled across an interview you gave last year and, and it, you basically referenced when you were five and you saw hydros and you wanted to race. What does it, I mean, these boats are doing a hundred, hundred plus miles an hour, easy hundred. And you mentioned 160 earlier that these you're three feet off the water, probably when you're sitting in one of these things, maybe a little bit higher than that, but you're certainly right on the water. There's been fatalities in the sport. How did you get started driving? Obviously you started probably in a smaller boat, but what's the progression that it took for you to go from being five and wanting to, to driving boats now when you're taking out the older boats for shows competitions? I, I wish there was a straight linear progression and, and many of the, the stick and ball sports have that linear progression where you start with little league when you're a certain age and then you go to junior high and then high school and then college. And then um, right. there are many, many drivers that have made that progression. Um, and mine was a little bit more sideways. Um, and uh, first of all, that, there are a lot of people that see something when they're five years old. Um, there, there are little girls that have seen ice dancing at five years old or, or seen women's soccer at five years old. And there are boys that have seen, you know, Russell Wilson at five years old. And I want to do that. Um, and, and it was no different for me as, as a hydroplane racer. I saw it. I wanted to do it. Um, I, the very first thing I did, um, I, I love my parents very much. And this story probably makes them sound worse than they were, but they were wonderful people. But I can remember at about 13 telling my dad, dad, I really, really, really want to get a hydroplane and I want to learn how to drive hydroplanes. And he said, well, that's great. You can do that anytime you want. That's absolutely wonderful. But first you have to get a job and you have to move out and get a house that has a garage and then you can buy a hydroplane and you can put it in your garage and you can race all you want. And it was like, you mean you're not going to buy it for me? It's like, no, no. My dad was a sailboater. He loved racing sailboats. So he, of course he wasn't going to buy a powerboat, but it takes that type of kind of linear thinking. It takes money to race hydroplanes. And to do that, you have to have a, you have to have a, a income source. So I, I did save up money and I bought my first hydroplane at 18 um, and I was not a terribly successful racer, um, but I was good enough to get a job um, working for a boat builder um, and then parlayed that into working for a race team and then parlayed that into working for a better race team. And through that progression, learned the skills um, to work on the boats and never quite um, actually never bought another race boat. Um, of my own ever again. I, I got, oh. I, I learned the skills and was able to work on other people's boats and repair other people's boats and then get their blessing to drive their boats. Um, I did get out of contemporary racing it, 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 in the world right now. There's vintage exhibitions and there's, right. there's real racing. Um, in the mid eighties, I got out of real racing and, it, um, it was a period that the sport had become extremely dangerous. Um, and there were, um, probably four drivers killed, um, or five killed in about a four year period who were friends who I knew, um, a couple that I was very, very close with. And it doesn't take a lot, um, to, to put that together and go, gee, John was a better driver than I am. And here I am carrying John's coffin to a hole in the ground and standing here next to his girlfriend while we bury. If he's better than me, then why should I be doing this and think I'm going to have any other results? So I got out of the sport for quite a while. Um, I got back in, um, in the early nineties when I, I learned about the museum. I did not found the museum, but I did. I learned about the museum and what they were doing and figured that was a way to stay connected with the sport and even to drive, but 
to drive in a in a safer fashion where when we did exhibitions we weren't running 10 tenths we were running you know seven tenths you know we were going at three quarters throttle and we were choreographed and it was much less likely for something bad to happen at that same okay. time though i still wanted still had the bug i wanted to race and um but racing itself had become much safer because we had evolved into enclosed canopies um, with an F-16 canopy and a chrome molly roll cage and a six-point shoulder harness and compressed air that you could breathe. And uh, it was significantly safer sport. Um, and at that point, um, I took a slightly different tack to get involved in contemporary racing where I now had the marketing skills to market myself to a sponsor and get uh, a bag of cash, take the bag of cash to the owner and say, here, this sponsor will give you this money if you let me drive your boat. Um, and that's how I became a qualified unlimited driver and, and raced for three and a half seasons. Never won anything. Um, had fun, um, gained a perspective and, and was also able to sort of check off that childhood dream that, gee, I really got to race in a gold cup. I really got to, um, you know, race at Seafair. And so who did you, in, in at Seafair, who, who'd you, uh, who are you, what boat were you running? Um, the, um, the first team I drove for was a company called Michigan mortgage. Uh, and, and we raced back East at the gold cup, um, and uh, Evansville, then at Seafair, I, I drove for Greg O'Farrell and Lake Ridge Paving. Um, then the following year, we brought on Albert Lee. So it was okay. Albert Lee. And then um, I qualified uh, initially in the Alberto. Um, okay. So that. Yes. I'm, I'm, while you're talking, I'm, I am listening. I'm scrolling on the auction that you guys had. <laughs> that we just had. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the Circus Circus jacket. Yes. The, the pink satin. And I, there pink was a name. I, you know, yeah. I just like, Oh, the circus circus. I remember that. You know, I didn't, there's just been some, you know, for growing up around here for people of our kind of age group, I think there was this, it was this really nostalgic. Well, there's, there's an explanation that I, I try and use for people to help them understand what powerboat racing means to Seattle. Um, and I'm going to use an analogy, a food analogy or a, a restaurant analogy. When you travel okay. around the country, if you go to New Orleans, um, you want to you want to have some food that's from New Orleans. You don't want to go to and forgive me, but you don't want to go to um, the Cheesecake Factory in New Orleans. You want to go to some funky, fun little, you know, right. Cajun fish shack. If if you're in Boston, you don't again. You don't want to go to the Cheesecake Factory. You can do that anywhere. Um, you want to go to that that little Boston chowder shop. Yep. Professional sports around the U S and I, I hope we don't get, I hope I don't get you hate mail for this, but the football, baseball, basketball, I won't say anything bad about hockey, but, but those sports are all sort of like the big chain restaurants. You know, the, um, there aren't a whole lot of guys that are playing for the Mariners that grew up playing for Garfield and then went to the U of dub and then went to the Mariners. Same way with the Seahawks. There's, there's, I don't think there's anyone on the Seahawks that ever played for Bellevue. Um, and maybe one or two players that played for a pac 12 team, but, but they're all, um, I've, I've lived, I've been lucky enough to live in new Orleans, Atlanta, Seattle, Los Angeles. And the only difference between the football teams or the baseball teams are the color of the uniforms. I mean, there's nothing mm -hmm. that's really inherently local, local. Um, it's a business that's based local, but, it, but they have to me the feel of that big cheesecake factory. Um, great food. I'm not knocking the cheesecake factory, but you can find that everywhere. NFL is great ball. But you can find that anywhere, but it doesn't have that sort of, essence that that local high school ball has if if you follow what i'm saying so for me absolutely for me hydroplane racing is that thing that is uniquely and wonderfully seattle um 
And if, if, if someone from out of town comes in and wants to know, what's it like to, you know, show me Seattle. Well, you take him to a Seafair race because that's, that's local. That's unique. That's something that you can't, you're not going to find that in Kansas city. You're not going to find that in, um, you know, in, uh, in Miami. I mean, we used to race in Miami, but I mean, it's just, it's a, it to me is local and carries the same type of heritage that a really good local, um, market local local restaurant that you'd find down by the pike place market not going to name anybody but well using your sports analogy i i'm i love baseball but i love going to minor league ball Mm -hmm. and the yes the players are still maybe not coming from the community that the tacoma rainiers there's not a lot of kids that grew up in tacoma they're playing for the rainiers getting ready to play for seattle but the advertising a lot of the food the ballpark Cheney stadium looks completely different than what Redbird stadium in Louisville, Kentucky uh-huh. looks like. And there's more of that essence of the community at the minor league level, where when you go to a, a major league sport, it is way more corporate, way more franchised. Like, like you said, cheesecake factory. I, I, I know I love the analogy because this is something that to me seems very much like, it was a Seattle sport. I know that's naive because they've raced in, like you said, Miami, uh, Evanston, uh, Detroit, Buffalo. I, I know that, but I still think of, I think, and I'm wrong, but I think that hydros are from Seattle. I just, that's how <laughs> well, I, I it, think it's weird. In that a they large way, they are. The, almost <laughs> every current team is based out of Seattle. A lot of the drivers come from Seattle. And, and we have... Um, the, the sport has fallen on, I don't want to say hard times, but we've moved away from professional teams um, and professional drivers. There are very, I, I don't think there's any driver that currently makes his full time 12 months out of the year living off of hydroplane racing. Um, all of these guys, you know, even when they get salary, they don't get a lot. Um, and they're primarily doing it for the love of the sport. And, and there's an argument to be made. Um, for many, many, many years, our country, our culture, um, idolized amateur sports. Um, and you, you couldn't compete in the Olympics if you weren't an amateur and an amateur. If you take the, the root of that is a more, it's people that love the sport. That's what an amateur is. He's someone you know, that, that loves the sport and plays for the love. Um, as we moved into professional sports, we tend to feel that, Unless someone's getting paid $111 million for four seasons, they're not really a good player. Um, and that you're not going to see the best of the best. Well, there's for, for over a century, the Olympics were completely amateur. Those were only people that played because they loved it. Um, and you had some, some iconic moments and some tremendous competition. So just the fact that our guys aren't out there drawn you know, million dollar year salaries doesn't mean that they're not terribly passionate about it. Haven't devoted their lives to it and aren't really good at it. Right. So uh, as I'm scrolling and I'm looking on the website, I'm looking at some restorations and now are these all boats that the museum has restored through the years, the, like the Miss Detroit three, the the museum has been, um, people often ask me, well, how many boats have you restored? And it's, it's, it's a tough number to, to pin down on. I, I was able to say that we've had our hands in 24 different restorations. Um, we haven't owned all 24 of those boats and we haven't done hundred percent of the work on all 24 of those. Um, we've probably done hundred percent of the work on 18 restorations over the past 20 okay. some years. Um, and of those 18, we probably have outright owned six of them. Um, we have uh, developed a really good relationship with a number of benefactors. And it's, it's interesting, within the nonprofit world, it's very common for a benefactor to support uh, a nonprofit activity. For example, at, um, at the zoo, there are benefactors that uh, fund the lion enclosure. That doesn't mean they want to bring a lion home and have a lion live in their backyard, but they like lions or they like gorillas and they want to support the lions and the gorillas. Hydroplane racing is exactly the same way. We've got some really wealthy benefactors 
that don't need to own the gorilla to love the gorilla. So they support us in, in doing the restorations. Um, and, and then there are people, there are a number of folks, um, probably three or four that own their own boats, but like the lion or the gorilla find it inconvenient to have them in their own backyard. So they, they keep them with us, allowing us to do the work, um, on their behalf. And whenever they want to come down and look at it or drive it or, you know, have it at their house to, to show off for a, a party or an anniversary or a high school reunion, you know, we do that. So we don't own them all. A lot are owned by benefactors. So out of all these boats, put you on the spot, what's your, what's your favorite boat? <laughs> That's like asking a parent who has four kids, who's your favorite kid? I love them all, but they're all very, very different. Um, oh, let me, let me rephrase. Let me, let me, let me, let me go, go different. If, if you were going to take only one boat to Lake Chelan and you were going to drive it, What's the combination? Is there a combo of is there a boat in the lake that you would go? Sure. Yes, I'd take this um, one. The the Miss Wahoo, um, which is a replica, but it's a replica okay. of the boat that Bill Boeing Jr. used to own, um, has a significant history on Lake Chelan, and is okay. a comfortable boat to drive on the lake, and is an easy boat to give rides in. So if you were asking me what would you want to take to Chelan, I'd take the Wahoo. If you okay. were asking me. You know, what's what's the most fun to drive at Seafare? Um, it would be the Griffin Bud, primarily because uh, the Seafare race course is a very comfortable course for that boat. That that course has kind of wider turns and you can carry a lot of speed into the turns. Um, and, and Chip Hanauer and I have been doing an exhibition um, side by side for 16 years where he drives the Atlas and I drive the Budweiser. And, oh. and we're really comfortable and just can, can kind of let loose and go a little bit faster than, than maybe other people are going to. And the boats look like they're racing and we, you know, we trade the lead back and forth. And I always let him win. I always have to let him win because, well, who wants to see David Williams win a race? You know, come on now. People want to see Earlier we talked about the Miss Rock. We, we root for the yeah. underdog. Come on. You got to win one. The Washington Generals win yeah. every now and yeah. again against well, the Globetrotters. I win elimination heats, and he always wins the final. But, but okay. as far as going to Seafair, that's just an awesome boat to drive at Seafair. It's fast and it's it's you know glamorous, um, and and each boat has its own personality, just like each kid would have his own personality. Each kid, right? So this Miss U District, <laughs> yes. Okay, what? does not look like other boats here. Uh-huh. It looks almost like an airplane from this uh-huh. drawing. And it was a 1957 boat. Can you tell us a little sure. bit? What's the story? And I'm going to link, I'm going to link to this boat in the show uh-huh. notes because it, it's very different looking. So the Miss You represents a, a wonderful part of the history of boat racing and also a wonderful part of, of sort of the American culture where people are inventive and try stuff. Um, and um, the Miss U was designed to be a one-point hydroplane. Uh, a fellow named Armin Swenson, who lived in the university district in the 1950s, he ran a gun shop. He actually uh, is well-known. Uh, he's passed away many years ago, but he was well-known at the time for uh, building custom Colt 45s. Um, but Armin had an idea for a race boat. And he built a scale model of the race boat. And I have the scale model. And he took the little scale model out to Green Lake and he tested it. And, oh, my goodness, it was the fastest thing anyone had ever seen. Um, I talked to one of the, the famous designers, Ted Jones, who saw Armin's test the model. And, and he said, oh, my gosh, if he could make that work, all of our boats are obsolete. Well, the problem with the scale model is that um, he built a boat that was about 26, 30 inches long, and he just bought uh, an airplane engine off the shelf, a, a, um, a model airplane engine, and put it in there, and, and it, everything was wonderful. Um, but there were t- a couple problems. One, the model airplane engine had about five times per weight the amount of horsepower that a real airplane engine would have. So he was running a boat that had five times the power to weight ratio that the real one would have. The other thing was 
Um, when you run uh, a model hydroplane, you don't put it into the water, start it, and let it accelerate out of the water. You start it on the beach, you get the engine running, and you come in and you wade up to about your waist, and then you throw it, and it hits the water already going you know, 20 miles an hour, and it takes off from there. Um, well, Armin built this boat. It was way underpowered, and there was no one, no great big giant that could hand launch the boat, you know, throw it in so it would hit the water already at planing speed, and it could never get on plane. Um, it's, it's shaped very much like a delta dart. Um, it's actually one big delta with, a, with two little sponsons and a propeller, directly underneath the center of the boat. Um, and then another uh, almost um, airplane-looking control surface with a big, uh, tall dorsal fin in back. Uh, it, it just represents that time when anybody thought they could do anything and let's give it a try. And we don't have any way to computer model it or simulate it or put it in a wind tunnel. But man, this drawing I made on my napkin in the, the living room really looks good, so let's try it. Well, it is compared to these other boats. It's, it's distinctive. Did it, did it just race for one season? It only went to one race, one race, and it couldn't get, uh, couldn't get on plane, never got going any faster than about 40 miles an hour. Um, the, the legend is that he continued to tinker with it for the next 20 years and eventually got it. So it could go about a hundred miles an hour, 120, no photographs of that exist. Um, when we got the boat from his widow, it, it had some unique changes to it, and it, it may have been able to go that fast. Um, we've elected to return it to its original 1957 configuration, and we'll be hanging it from the ceiling because it really looks cool. But um, there's, none of us really wanted to try and drive it. So what engine was it? What, what, what powered that boat? Um, if that was... That's- a combustion not that's not turbine so that's yeah that that was a, a straight six engine um that uh actually um was very popular in sprint car racing it was a it was a naturally aspirated normal carburetor no supercharger no blower and only six cylinders um and it it was the engine was a, called a ranger that it came out of like a pt i think a pt19 World War II era trainer, um, and not nearly enough horsepower to do to do what Armin needed it to do. So in '58, I'm looking at the U40, the Miss Bardall. What what powered that boat? Um, the Bardall. Uh, it depends on which one you're looking at. Uh, the 1958 Bardall started out with an Allison engine, which was a V12, uh, 1,710 cubic inch blowing engine out of a P38 Lightning. Um, and then later in its career, it converted to a Rolls-Royce Merlin, which is a, a slightly smaller engine, but with a two-stage supercharger that put out significantly more horsepower. And that was an engine that was used in the P-51 Mustang, uh, one of the iconic fighters, and another iconic fighter, the, uh, the Spitfire, the English Spitfire. So really, the Miss U was woefully underpowered compared to the Bardall, even Absolutely. in the same era. Yes. Okay. All right. Significantly. Well, and then the other thing here, so where did it go? Well, it, slow motion, the name. Yes. Was there a story behind that? Uh, yes. Um, slow motion was uh, a boat, uh, a team that was owned by Stan Sayers. And there were actually five slow motions. Um, and the first three were limited hydros. The, the last two were unlimited. And when the first slow-mo ran um, in the early 40s, um, Stan Sayer's wife, a woman named Madeline, saw the boat. Uh, and when he got back to the dock, um, she said, wow, your boat's so fast. It looks like all the others are moving in slow motion. So they decided to name the boat Slow Motion. Um, and it, uh, it was, uh, just that sort of, you know, I, it became an iconic name for Seattle. Uh, yeah. No, oh, that's okay. So, so one thing we talked about before the, before we started recording and, and so the Miss Wahoo, yes, it was driven by uh, Myra Slovak, which is a, 
is a, another book you've written. Yeah. Um, and it looks like there's a pretty amazing story there. Myra Slovak was an incredible gentleman. Um, and I was, I was lucky enough to become very close friends with him and uh, was able to write his biography. Myra Slovak was born in Czechoslovakia and lived through World War II and the Nazi occupation um, and then lived through the Russian liberation and he said that the liberation, the Russian liberation from the Nazis was far worse than the Nazi occupation. <coughs> and then uh, at the end of World War II, when uh, the communist bloc sort of, not sort of, took over most of Eastern Europe, Czechoslovakia was behind the Iron Curtain. And Myra lived through the the real difficult times of the Russian uh, of the of the the communist era, um, in 1953, uh, Myra had become a uh, a captain in the Czechoslovakian Air Force. He was only 21 years old and was a captain, which is a pretty incredible story. How you get to be a captain at that young age, um, and there was a shortage of airline pilots, so the Air Force loaned some military pilots to the Czechoslovakian Airlines. Um, Myra had already decided he was going to defect first chance he got. So he smuggled guns on board his own airline that he was flying as captain um, and hijacked his own airplane, took the crew uh, under control at gunpoint, tied them up with the help of a couple accomplices and flew across the Iron Curtain being chased by MiGs um, and uh, eventually landed in in. Germany defected by mere chance of fate. Um, when he came across, he had um, a shipment that had been intended for the Czechoslovakian Air Force. It was a shipment of documents that included all of the detailed construction drawings for a, um, a nuclear base. Um, and he turned those over to the CIA the CIA became incredibly uh, grateful to Myra for what he had brought them and gave him sort of a free pass to come to America. Um, and then they gave him a job working as a um, personal pilot to Bill Boeing. And there's tremendous, I'm, I'm glossing over a lot of really, really good story here, but then working for Bill Boeing uh, in Seattle in the 1950s, Boeing decided he wanted to race hydroplanes um, and he offered Myra the chance to drive his unlimited hydroplane. So Myra became a, a champion hydroplane racer, winning two world championships and the gold cup. Um, he later went on to become a champion airplane racer, winning the very first Reno gold race. Um, the only man in history to win both uh, Powerboat's biggest trophy, the gold cup, and uh, Air Racing's biggest trophy, the Air Race in Reno. Um, and Myra dated movie starlets and um, lived quite a high-profile, fast life. Um, when we were restoring the Miss Wahoo, Myra came up um, to watch, and he and I became friends. He realized that I was a writer, um, and he asked me to write his biography. The book's done very, very well. It's called A Race to Freedom and has recently been optioned by a production company called Vespucci Group, um, which is run coincidentally by a, a man who is the son of um, an expatriate Czechoslovakian who defected during uh, the Cold War era as well. Uh, and they've taken an option on producing uh, a movie based on the book. So I got my fingers crossed. Things are going well there. And uh, Oh, that's awesome. That's a, that's a very cool story. So he... Okay, wait a second. I gotta, I'm going to have to ask sure. this question. So the CIA had to become Bill Boeing's pilot. That just seems odd. But we'll, I'm sure that's in the book. And so if somebody wants to see that, they're going to read the book. But I want to know, how does he go from being a, a pilot to being the driver for Boeing on an unlimited boat? I mean, that's... <laughs> That's a jump. It, well, it is, but it there at the time, um, the major hydroplane driver, I'm sorry, the major hydroplane builder was a man named Ted Jones. Ted 
believed and was very public about the fact that he thought the boats that he built, the hydroplanes, were more plane than boat and were best driven by pilots. And during that period, there were a number of pilots um, that had become hydroplane racers without much experience in boats, but lots of experience in planes. So um, Ted Jones had recommended to Bill Boeing that he find a pilot to drive the boat. Um, Myra's English was not wonderful. And Myra happened to be flying Bill um, back from a meeting that he had had up in Canada. Um, And on the way back, uh, they began to talk about this hydroplane. And Bill Boeing asked Myra um, at you know, 20,000 feet as they're flying, or probably 10,000 feet flying home from Canada. So have you ever driven a boat before? Um, and Myra said, yeah, I've, sure, I've driven a boat. Would you like to drive my boat? Sure, I'd be happy to drive your boat. What Bill neglected to ask is what type of boat Myra had driven and how fast he'd gone. At that point, the only thing Myra had ever only boat Meyer had ever been in was a kayak and the fastest he'd gone was nine miles an hour. Um, and, uh, Bill never heard that until after Myra was already racing and, and was able to tell him the story without risking losing his job. Wow. See, so there's just the history of the region in this sport is just phenomenal. So, when you're not restoring boats, when you're not the, uh, the executive director of the museum, and you're getting out about in Washington state, we always ask people like where and you kind of touched on this. So this will be, I think this will be easy for you. You kind of reference the cheesecake factory. <laughs> I have this thing. I have this thing. So whenever I'm traveling, my goal is to never eat at a restaurant that I can eat at at home. Of course. Sure. Okay. That's, that's my goal. That's how I like to travel. And so my only consistent where I break that rule is I'll go to Starbucks because you know, they have clean bathrooms <laughs> and the coffee's okay. So I'll go to a Starbucks no matter where I'm at. When you're traveling around Washington, where, what do you like to do when you're not, when you're not in a boat? What, what other things interest you about Washington? You, you, you've settled here, you, you know, you moved around a bit, uh, but you're here now. Uh, well, the thing that, and I don't want this to sound too self-serving because it's another plug. Um, the, the Myra Slovak book um, turned out to be very successful. And I began to write that book while Bill Boeing Jr. was still alive. Um, And Bill Jr. and I had become very good friends, which is one of the things that allowed me to write the book because Bill is a significant character in that book. Um, Both Myra and Bill passed away while that book was being written. So to finish the book, I had to find people that, um, that could give me more information about the story. So I arranged a Boeing family reunion, um, where I got all of Bill Boeing Jr.'s kids together, the, the, the remaining ones, um, and several grandkids. And we sort of had lunch together and told stories and, and really became friends. Um, and I was, I was struck by, even though they had tremendous wealth and privilege, their stories were not that different than mine. They had favorite pets. They had meals that grandma made that were favorite meals. And that's a long way of saying that I, I became friendly with the Boeing family. They liked the book and the job that I had done on Myra Slovak. So they offered me the opportunity to write the, the only biography of Bill Boeing Sr., the founder of the company that's, that's ever been written. So right now I am knee deep in aviation history, in Boeing history. Um, and, and so I'm a history buff. The thing that I really enjoying right now is, is Seattle history and, and, and Boeing history, what a lot of people don't realize is that for Bill Boeing, airplanes were his hobby and the third business that he was in. And he, um, he was luckily born into a family with significant money, became a multimillionaire in mining uh, and a multi-multi-millionaire in timber. And then much like Jeff Bezos, who made a ton of money through um, – early in life, took a second business, and Bezos is, is playing with Blue Origin and spaceships as a hobby, more or less. 
Bill Boeing was playing with mm-hmm. airplanes as a hobby. He was already long before he ever even thought of building an airplane. He was the richest man in Washington state. So anyway, the, we've talked about history. We've talked about the dominoes of history. Uh, and you asked what it is I like to do. I like to, to research history. And it's led me to the next book, which hopefully will be out in about a year. That's fascinating. I, I had no idea that Boeing was involved in timber or mining. That's and that's, uh, I didn't know, I had no idea. Um, that's, that's amazing. So we're going to wrap this up, but when, if people want to find out more about, about what you're doing, uh, your books, I mean, I can drive them to Amazon, but you know, okay. But uh, how about the museum currently? The museum's not open to the public because of our current right, pandemic. We, we've gone into, we put the museum into sort of a deep hibernation. Um, we, we still have some of our volunteer crews coming in to maintain the boats um, and, and keep, you know, so, sort of like to go back to the zoo and the lions, even when the zoo's closed, someone has to come in and feed the lions and give them water and clean their cages. So we still have people maintaining the boats. We're not open to the public yet. Um, and, and we hope to, we hope to open when it's safe for everybody. Um, but to find out about the museum, your best bet would be to go to our website. Um, and I understand I've got a little bit of work to do on the website when this broadcast ends, uh, but I'll have that sorted out. Uh, the web address is an easy one. It's thunderboats, plural, T-H-U-N-D-E-R-B-O-A-T-S dot O-R-G. Um, and that'll get you in and um, you can buy books, you can buy videos, you can buy T-shirts and models and all sorts of fun hydro stuff there. And hear about what we're doing here, when we're going to Chelan next, when we're going to run, um, and even how to take part in one of our driver schools where you get a chance to go out in a boat by yourself. Not by yourself, go out on a boat with an experienced driver. So you guys offer, okay, we were going to wrap up, but now you you piqued my curiosity. So um, I can never remember the name of what the Chelan event is called, Mahogany Mahogany and and Merlot. Merlot. There's an event we hold in Chelan. First weekend in October for the last 23 years. So last year in 2019, I was there with some friends. And what I thought was odd was I've always thought of hydros as being a a one-person ride. And you guys had had a fundraiser or an auction or something, and you were giving uh, the winners, they they could go for a ride. Well, we offer, Um, it's actually, it's called driving school. um, Where we offer the experience of learning how to drive a hydroplane, learning how to start it, learning how to, to, you know, how to operate it. And sort of the graduation for that is to go out with an experienced driver and run three laps on Lake Chelan. Um, and, and you'll get to steer the boat and, and, you know, take it through the corner with, with the experienced driver in, in the boat with you. And you look like so are those boats retrofitted for a second yes um passenger it, yeah it doesn't take that much because um we we take the bucket seat out and we put a bench seat in or a, a, a two-person side-by-side seat so the boats never okay. would race with the buckets well they in the 50s boats raced with with two people often there needed okay. to be a mechanic to make sure that if anything went wrong on the boat you could you know finish the race um, so we take the single seat out. We use the single seat if we're running exhibitions or if, if we're, um, but we can take that single seat out and put in a side-by-side bench seat. Okay. Th- that explains it. Cause that was the, cause it was pretty fun. You guys were taking, and I remember the, watching the guys that were, uh, lucky enough to go along and they were, they were like little kids. It's I mean, they bucket, were super It's a excited. bucket list experience. It, it, it clearly yeah, is a bucket list they were really jazzed about getting to go out in a boat and, and it was fun to watch. So the museum, they can find you there and all of that. And I just want to say thank you for making this happen. Cause this has been very enjoyable for me. Um, reliving kind of some of my seventies childhood, <laughs> um, and, uh, names, the names that I hadn't thought about in a while, like that circus circus jacket. That was, that was pretty interesting. Um, but I gotta, I gotta hold you. So, What's your, you're not going to tell me your favorite boat, but what's your favorite era of, of, of racing? Um, the, the part that still holds magic for me is the 
the early 1960s, 1962, three, four, five, when I was okay. five years old and fallen in love with the sport. Um, it just right. at that time, um, the boats were beautiful and, and the drivers were dashing and handsome and famous. And um, to, to my way of thinking at, at that time, there was no difference between a, a driver like Bill Muncie. If Bill Muncie was famous, then that put him in my mind on the same level as Bart Starr or Johnny Carson or JFK. I mean, huh? they were all superstars and uh, okay. That's when I fell in love. Well, I mean, Chip, Chip Hanauer was a name. He was definitely a celebrity. I mean, yeah, he, you know, in, in Bill Muncie, um, th- yeah, they were larger than life icons. Yes, absolutely. They were, they were absolutely. So, and I'm trying to think, um, there's one other name that was really big and it's, I'm just drawing a complete blank of who it is I'm thinking well, of, were- but this would have been like the seventies era. Who, who are the, who are the really big drivers in well, the seventies? Um, there was, uh, Bill Muncie, uh, mm-hmm. Dean Chenoweth. Um, is that the name you're looking for? That's, that's, that's one of the names. It's like, Oh yeah. I didn't think about that, but that's Bill definitely Schumacher. a name that I remember. Um, that's it. That's the name. That's actually the name. Okay. But these were guys that, you know, as a kid, you know, we, we talked about these guys. They were, they were, you know, we didn't have, um, well, the Mariners weren't in town yet. We didn't have, we had the Sonics and I was a huge Sonics fan. Um, but they, they were, they were celebrities to us and, and that was pretty cool. So, um, thank you. This has been great. And I look forward to being able to check out the museum in person one of these days and just go and, um, get up close to, well, I don't know how close we can get to the boats, but I'd like to, you know, take a really good look well, at them. I, they're, they're art. In normal times, um, we even have boats you can sit in. I mean, we're not a museum that has velvet ropes between you and the artifacts. You can touch the boats. You can sit in. If you stand still too long, I'm going to hand you some tools and put you to work on a motor. Um, <laughs> and that's one of the problems why we haven't been able to open um, in the pandemic. We are such a hands-on uh, museum. That is such a cool part of coming in is to let you sit in the boat, let you get your picture taken of the boat. Um, that the, um, the disinfecting and cleaning that we have to do after every visitor, um, either we change the experience so you don't have as much fun or we have to put in tremendous amount of, of, you know, of labor to, to clean after each visitor. So we've just decided to wait and kind of, um, see how this goes. See how it all shakes out. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Um, I appreciate it. Um, look forward to, we'll be getting this ready to go and, and publish all, all right. that. And you know that we'll let you know. Well, thank you, Scott. Um, but thank you for being it's on. It's been a pleasure. Ivan. All right. Take care. Join us next time for another episode of the exploring Washington state podcast. 